0: Thanks everyone. Um, this next session is really a sort of a carry-on from, from David's session, just in terms of highlighting where the industry was. I was hoping that there would be more in the audience who were going to be supportive of sort of market conduct and market practice, given that a lot of us in, in the um, room today frame that. Uh, but I think given the weight of evidence against us, almost everybody agreed that we needed radical reform in the annuity space. So. One of the sort of areas under consideration is the distribution costs and the difficulties that the man in the street has dealing with the sort of choices facing them, particularly in terms of living annuity space. And so one of the ways to solve that is is to put the onus on trustees and provide in-fund annuities. And so that's what we've really got today. We've got John Anderson from Alexander Forbes. He's... Um, Head of Research and Product Development, Um, should be well known to those of you in the audience, has been in the industry for quite some time, consulting to a large number of clients, as evaluator, a benefits consultant, and as an an investment consultant, and currently responsible for overseeing the research, best practice, and product development that happens within Alexander Forbes. He'll be talking for um, the use of end fund annuity options, and also, hopefully, equally uh, known to you all, Eric Potketer from Towers Watson uh, will be talking against the use of in front options. Eric was studied at UCT. Um, I think John did too. Went across to England, got his PhD in English, decided that he preferred to see some sun, came back to, to Cape Town, worked for Old Mutual, and was part of the group of pensions actuaries who formed Fifth Quadrant and now remains with the same company and its different guys as, as Tars Watson, and also has been a consulting actuary for a large number of years, looking after both the liability side and the asset side. So before we started, technology willing, I thought that I'd ask a quick question in terms of annuities. So when you retire, you will commute in full, buy an inflationing annuity, buy a fixed increase or with-profit annuity, or buy a living annuity. I'm wanting to see if David scared you. Alright, so 10% of the audience doesn't believe in the industry and wants to take their money and run. And then, would you apply the same advice to your mother or sister when she retires? Would you recommend that they commute in full, buy an inflation-linked annuity, a fixed annuity, or a living annuity? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you're willing to take on a little bit of risk, but you <laughs> you're uncomfortable about the uh, Sunday lunches and having to explain what's happening in the investment markets very interesting to see that we're willing to eat our own cooking. Right, I'd like to hand over to John, who will present the case for infund annuities.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Um, as Rowan mentioned, I'll be talking about infund living annuities, but I think before we start there, just maybe commenting on some of the things that uh, David presented in the earlier session. So I think he did a good job for actually motivating why we should be considering um, using our institutional infrastructure to better help members make better annuity decisions, um, instead of just leaving them out on their own, which is essentially what we're doing. So if anything, you know, after you know, Eric's presentation, if we can come to... I think the big uh, insight that I'd like to share is the principle of you know better using our institutional infrastructure in whatever way. So it could be in-fund, it could be something else. I think this is just one of the different options out there. But I'll present to you, I think, an in-fund arrangement or depending on how you define in-fund, better trustee involvement in the annuity decision and in the the kind of product that is made available to their members. That is that is essentially what I'm going to be trying to put forward here. So where does it come from? I think it comes really from uh, just rethinking the whole annuities environment as David took us through earlier. I'll first start off with the why. Why should we be considering in-fund annuities? And I think this is in addition to what David has really put forth in, in the previous presentation which I think was a really good motivation to say let's use pension funds better, the ins- institutional infrastructure to help in the annuity decision. The first thing is having a look at current annuity choices. David put up a whole lot of uh, statistics to have a look at how many people are selecting living annuities. This comes from, an, uh, from our own analysis looking at a, uh, a whole range of um, pension funds trying to analyze what people are actually buying. And this is a 2010 um, analysis, but an analysis that we did back in 2005 was pretty similar. The blue bars show you by number what people are choosing, um, and you can see the the, the, the vast majority are choosing live, living annuities. You'll see there's about a 20% proportion in the the sample that chose something unknown, uh, and it was just a matter of you know going through the data and trying to have a look at you know what annuities they're purchasing and we subsequently found that the majority were really living annuities, not life annuities. Also, by benefit size, you can see a large, large proportion, the majority going to living annuities and people not buying sufficient life annuities. So my question to you is, do you think that people are making the right annuity choices? Is there sufficient uh, cognizance of longevity? Um, shouldn't the stats be a little bit more mixed, a bit more balanced, so they're not skewed? And I would argue that they are skewed. And uh, and I think some of the reasons are um, a big issue is people don't have sufficient savings at retirement. That's a big, big issue. So I think in some of the earlier questions, I think the number one reason is people simply don't have a choice. They need the higher drawdown rate. Living annuities is the only way to help them sustain that and then worry about the problem a little bit later. Also, there's a structural issue in the industry, um, and that's my second big reason, in that the the way that remuneration works in the industry favors more the living annuities rather than life annuities. I think those are the two big issues that need to be addressed. We can't just have a look at annuities in isolation, we need to try and help people save more. That's going to be the big one. If you address that, we think that together with some of the other things that I'll present, then you can actually improve annuitization. By allowing in-fund or institutional infrastructure alone isn't going to solve the problem. You have to first start with saving more, preserving more, and then you need to relook at the whole industry in terms of how information is presented, remuneration structure, etc. And in fund is only one of those options. So by no means am I trying to say this is a silver bullet, it's just one of the one of the options there. The other thing is that this ignores how much people actually commute and take in cash. This is the after commutation amounts. Can you take a guess how many, based on our analysis, if we have a look at uh, roughly about a million members, what is the percentage commutation amount? 10%, 20%, it's over 40%. And that takes into account provident funds where people can take the full amount in cash. So even before this, there's a high proportion of cash been taken, not even invested in annuity type uh, solutions, but rather physically taken in cash. How optimal is that? Here's another example. So the majority are taking living annuities. And when they're taking living annuities, we're starting to see a trend of an increase in drawdown rates. This is an analysis that goes back to 2007. Admittedly, it's not the full Assista database. and I think hopefully over time the Assista database will give you better information than this. But in the absence, this is about 7,000 living annuitants that we analyzed. And you can actually see, going from 2007 to 2011, the average drawdown rate by number this is not weighted by amount, the ACISA stats, a lot of it is weighted by amount, this is by number, has increased, especially post the financial crisis, and we'd expect the trend to continue if you take um, Clem's um, favorite scenario of really low-no growth going forward, people are going to have to, um, you know, we'll we'll expect increasing drawdown rates. And it's not happening just at the older ages when people are running out of money. Potentially, it's already starting at even some of the younger ages when people are increasing their their drawdown rates. And I think this particular issue is not just, you know, prevalent in South Africa, this whole annuity puzzle. Uh, We found a lot of people internationally don't annuitize. And... I'll get to some of the behavioural finance issues behind that that also needs to be addressed in conjunction with how do we structure an in-fund annuity using some of those techniques. But let's get to some of the other reasons why we should be looking at in-fund solutions. Costs matter more than ever and I think the point was made very well by David in his earlier presentation as well as by Clem that going forward value for money is going to be very, very important. And it's staggering to see if you look at the the total expense ratios how high they actually are in the annuity space. This is a graph that just has a look at the real returns over the last 10 years in South Africa. Phenomenal real returns, almost 10% in equities. Even bonds, and that's nominal bonds, gave you about 6% real. Even cash gave you good uh, real returns. Property, who would have known, giving you, and this is listed, so it doesn't include the whole the whole property market, but it's listed uh, property giving you real 20%. Even inflation-linked bonds, we know that has given you in excess of uh, 6% real. Offshore, uh, over the last 10 years, giving you negative, but looking forward, positive. I think the big um, message here from, from me is have a look at the purple bars. Those are the, at least from our perspective, our house view, looking at real returns over the next 10 years. They're all significantly lower than the last 10 years. So the last 10 years has masked a lot of things. It didn't matter if costs were 1%, 2%, maybe so many times even 3%. Returns were great. It didn't matter if you had a living annuity because the returns were actually so great, maybe it was a better option. And I think there's also been a cult in South Africa of active investors um, getting in there. And everything in, in our economy and everything, the way that we structure in the industry is revolving around investment, not consumption. And I think there's a shift that needs to take place between how you frame things to people from an investment point of view to consumption as they move into retirement. And I'll get to that in a, in a moment. But the big issue in fund annuities, if you institutionalize it, it can allow you, because of group purchasing power, to reduce the price. There's now an intermediary being the trustee in place that can help members get a better deal, structure things, and have something more standardized as a default and I think this is one of the big reasons why we really and seriously do need to consider trustee involvement in how we structure some of these things. Just talking about internationally, uh, the annuity puzzle, why is this a big issue? The first issue is general evidence of financial literacy. Even in developed economies, financial literacy is a problem. Clearly the stats here show in South Africa it's also a problem. Who better than to help members improve financial literacy than the trustees who know them, that have a better relationship, or even the employer, getting the employer more involved with these kinds of things. So when I I define an in-fund annuity, it's more in-fund annuity plus the education that you give to the members to help improve financial literacy. Framing is also a very important issue. The, the literature, at least that, that I've read, is inconclusive of a lot of the behavioral issues. For example, loss aversion, regret aversion. There's mixed signals there. Do people don't want to lose money um, if they die young? Or you know uh, the loss of control of the assets, is that a big issue? But one thing that comes out loud and clear is on framing. How do you frame the problem to your retiree? And often in South Africa we say, how best should I invest my pension fund for retirement? I don't say how should I best secure my income in retirement or how can I better get a pension to you know from a consumption point of view it's a subtle but very powerful thing and studies have shown that that really does improve the you know the kind of options that people take up so together with trustees helping improve financial literacy having a look at framing the information that is given adding that level of governance where trustees can help Implement some of those um, techniques, I think would be very valuable. And then the last, most powerful option and reason for why I think in fund annuities are quite important is the power of default options. Default options, because of behavioural finance, because of inertia, and because people think that you know if the trustees thinks it's a good thing, that's you know that's good by me. I think that's a really powerful thing to try and help improve the annuities. In practice. There's no reason why people can't structure some in-fund annuities, depending on how you structure them. So why is there a problem? Why are most funds, do you know of any funds that have in-fund annuities? Very few. In practice, where we've got funds that have put this in place for the right reasons, how many members do you think actually take the option up? Very few. And the reasons are, I'll unpack them as to how we can address those things. So I think we do need to allow it, and I think we need to address some of the problems which are regulatory, uh, legal, a couple of other issues, and help support trustees to put these things in place. Out of interest, when we did a seminar with our clients recently, asked a, a poll, how many of them think that something like this, a default, would be good? The vast majority said yes. And when we asked them, why haven't you considered it before? They said they don't know. They didn't know about it before. They didn't consider it. Or they had issues with legal, phase, all that. So if we can eliminate some of those issues, I think the support is definitely out there from our clients. How do you structure in-fund annuities? I think that the definition is, what is an in-fund annuity? So let me start off with just just unpacking that a bit more. I mean, I've talked about the better oversight, the better governance, the purchasing power that trustees bring, less conflicted advice. If you put in place a structure where the remuneration does not depend on whether it's a living annuity or a a with-profits annuity or any other annuity, I think you're gonna get a better outcome. Currently the remuneration models really in the industry favors living annuity and that's one of the big issues. Also by having oh. trustees in place they can help you know, put in place um, access to expert advice at a more group level. And I think things like um, some of the initiatives to remove, remove some of the phase barriers will be quite important over there. Uh, Because that's one of the biggest hurdles that trustees face is, if we're going to do some of these things and put this advice in place, are we at risk as a trustee from phase? So if we specifically address that issue from a trustee point of view, I think we can make a lot of headway here. Also, in putting these things in place, you can have a better tailored investment strategy suitable to your members, not not lots of choice, have a limited choice menu, applying some of the techniques that we've learned in the pre-retirement phase to the post-retirement phase. And also if you have an in-fund, one of the most powerful things is the assets can switch between the pre and the post-retirement phases quite seamlessly. I think that's a very powerful thing as well, not exposing people to timing risk at particular points in time. The other issues why I think it's quite a good, good thing to put these things in place is just the social compact between your fellow employees, retirees and trustees. The trust factor. That's, that's there and the additional level of governance that's put in place to try and help address those issues. From a financial point of view, you know, we may see higher preservation rates that remains to be seen, lower leakage, um, but we, we would also argue that you'd see appropriate risk adjusted returns depending on your membership profile where trustees know what the members are and address some of the behavioral issues. And a big one is to try and lower the costs given this future return where we're going to expect low real returns going forward. Costs do matter. So how do you do these things? The one option is to have a trustee managed with profits annuity policy, where you literally have everybody pooled in the fund. The fund pays the pensions and the defined benefit risk remains in the fund. I would argue that there's probably little appetite. Maybe you agree that that's a solution for us in South Africa. A lot of funds have moved from DB to DC, specifically wanting to outsource that defined benefit risk. And employers, I don't think, will have the capacity to deal with that risk. So unless we can actually address that um, in some form or other, I don't think from an in-fund point of view, such pooled arrangements, except for maybe some of the largest funds, will be appropriate. However, the other one, and I've just, that's why we, we need to decide what does in-fund mean, if an in-fund means simply that the trustees are facilitating the purchase of an annuity and obtaining it at group rates, in my view, that's also an in-fund. The reason is the trustees have a, a, a governance level in place, just like any other service provider, they go and do rebrokes, they have a look at all the factors, the security, solvency, etc., etc., and they then structure something um, and integrated with the administration system to put in place something like this. I think this can actually work. It addresses the issue that you don't have the, the defined benefit risk. It's still, that risk might still remain then with the individual, but at least the choice and the way that you structure the things and the costs, you can improve some things there. You can introduce simplicity, and I don't think it will introduce significantly more administration um, within, the, within the pension fund environment. The other other way of doing it is living living annuities. And I think there's no reason why retirement funds can't do this. You've got the accumulation phase, it's a DC account, contributions go in. All you now need to do is let contributions go out. It's quite simple. One has a plus, the one has a negative. So it's quite simple. I I don't think this has that much complexity to it. And I think this is an area that funds can address a lot of issues. In any event, most people take living annuities. So the majority of your, your your fund members would probably, depending on if we address the other things successfully, take this option anyway. So how better to try and reduce the cost for them and introduce better decision making on the limits, the drawdown rates, the communication, etc., by having an in-fund option that's administered inside the fund, you can even have it in umbrella funds, and it has some form of governance structure overall. It'll improve the re- the monitoring, reporting, and you can also introduce education initiatives as part of this as well, on a more focused basis, looking at each particular individual. So some of the governance issues, these are some of the issues that trustees face today if they want to put these things in place. to look at the Income Tax Act, accounting requirements, there's concerns about Section 37C, what happens when people need to die, the lengthy process if a living annuitant had to die. There's there's a CISA standards and I think that's those are good standards to try and help structure in fund living annuities But one of the biggest issues that trustees face is if I put these things in place don't I risk? phase complications and that's one of the biggest issues that we need to address um, to try and help trustees really and honestly consider these particular um, these particular arrangements We try to have a look at the international to see if there's anything that can help us and guide us. David, maybe you know a little bit better, but when we looked, there wasn't a lot that could help us in structuring specifically in-fund solutions other than what I've set out um, previously. Internationally the the focus is really on managing risks. There's a a big trend towards buyouts, uh, partial buyouts, buy-ins, where there's a matching investment strategy, synthetic buy-ins where there's a lot of swap contracts, etc. So in fund living annuities are not common though, but I think that's more because of the way that other countries are structured. They still have drawdown accounts and they still have mechanisms of getting quotes on a more centralised basis. I think all we're trying to say here is for South Africa use the existing infrastructure that you've got in terms of pension funds, which works really well, and try and build some things in um, to utilise that. So the challenges that we need to face before we get to to, to Eric's is. For in fund living annuities, it's the provision of advice. I mean my view is you can't let you can't allow a default option without some form of assistance to a member. One of the biggest reasons why even with funds that have this in place, why members do not take it up, they get a brochure from the fund. The fund says we've we've done this thing for all our members, the costs are low, it's really structured well. The trustees oversee it, yet members don't take it up. The biggest reason is at the bottom they say, we cannot give you financial advice, please go and seek your financial advisor. So off they go to the financial advisor. The advisor says, no, no, I've got something better for you. There's no incentive for the advisor to actually advise on the in-fund structure. So you have to bring in some form of advisory framework in-fund with an in-fund annuity where there's no no problem and conflict between having a living annuity or a with profit or inflation-linked annuity. If you do that, then I think you can have a significantly better take-up of default in-fund living annuities. The other issue is effective education. As I mentioned before, we're not going to improve anything unless we address the behavioral biases in there. And I think funds can also, they funds have tried to address the behavioral biases pre-retirement by defaults, life stage for example, uh, default contribution rates very successfully, nudging people to increase their contribution rates, we can do the same in fund, just for the decumulation phase, and instead of framing it as an investment problem, you frame it as a consumption problem. And then a couple of details that are quite important, if we do this, we need to have valuation exemptions uh, reviewed, because a big issue for funds is if they do this, they lose their valuation exemption status and I think that's a big issue and then the phase issue is, is really significant if we do this also there needs to be some form of exemption for funds offering these kinds of annuities um, to address the phase issues and then again the credit risk I don't think they. I, I wouldn't argue any anywhere there I don't think in fund with profit annuities as a pool would work but facilitating quotes on an in fund basis I think will definitely work so that's it for me Rowan. So I think This was originally conceived
2: to be a debate uh, between myself and John, where John would argue in favour of um, in fund pensions and I would argue against. So I'm going to preserve a little bit of the spirit of that because I am going to talk about uh, some of the difficulties that I've experienced um, or my clients have experienced with operating uh, in fund annuity pools. But I think you should come away with the seeing that there's really a, a great deal of commonality between what I've got to say what John has been saying and, and what David McCarthy said before the tea break. I think we're probably really uh, all on very much the same page. I'm going to start off by talking, uh, again, briefly restating the problem that we're trying to solve if we're considering fund-paid pensions or in-fund annuities, and then I'm going to go on to talk about some of the practical experiences that I've had in assisting trustees to manage in-fund annuity pools, both with profits, pension pools, um, and living annuities. So first of all, what problem are we trying to solve? And um, I think you would have picked this up already from the the earlier uh, presentations and and the the votes that I think there's not going to be a great deal of disagreement that, first of all, that the support that is provided by funds for their members during employment, which is uh, often fairly high quality, largely disappears at the point at which members reach retirement. So I think trustees, uh, good though their intentions may be, are not currently providing um, retirees with uh, as, as much support as, as retirees may have come to expect um, given uh, the type of communication and the type of support they've been getting while they have been in service members of the funds. Second point on which we probably all agree is that too many retirees are investing in costly and unsuitable and probably unsustainable um, living annuities and they are storing up problems for later years. I think that uh, we really have a mis-selling scandal waiting around the living annuity industry. I, I think that um, uh, it, it, it is a really big problem for the pensions industry. And frankly, what is at the heart of that problem is incentives for advisors. Commission-driven sell- selling um, is, is a big issue. So what is the problem that we're trying to solve? I, I think with that by way of background, being able to offer some kind of a packaged pension to retirees, whether it is simply sponsored by the fund or actually provided by the fund, as in the old defined benefit days, does seem an attractive option. Uh, we've got to be careful, though, to be, to be clear what form of pension is best and uh, uh, understand that that, that that is maybe a less obvious th- – the answer to that is maybe less obvious than, than it seems at first sight. Now, I was going to put you the same type of question that, that Rowan put you, to put you right at the start. I don't know whether it's really worth going through this with the, the clickers again because um, I think we know what the answers are. But uh, also, I was going to ask you uh, your personal preferences if you were to retire uh, between the different forms of the annuity product, uh, if you had a large amount of capital so that you, you weren't sensitive to the, the starting level of pension that any of the options would provide you with what you would regard as an acceptable level of initial uh, post-retirement income, which of the following would you prefer? Uh, And my range of choices was, first of all, an inflation-linked guaranteed annuity, secondly, uh, with profits annuity, thirdly, a fixed escalation or a level guaranteed annuity, and fourthly, a living annuity. Now, I think we saw from the pattern of responses to to Rowan's questions that there was quite a high vote, there was probably a majority for an inflation-linked annuity, And trailing behind that, there were still quite a number of you who who were uh, happy to take the living annuity risks for yourselves, although maybe less so for for family members who may be less financially sophisticated and therefore less able to manage the the complexities of a living annuity. I was also going to say, uh, if we added in the uh, provident fund commutation option, uh, as a fifth choice and say um, if you were able to take all of the retirement capital outside the retirement fund net and have it as discretionary savings, uh, would you prefer that? I think, again, um, the answers to, to Rowan's uh, question suggest that, that more of you, the majority of you, would prefer to stay inside the, the, the retirement fund net. That might be tax-driven, of course, um, but uh, I, I don't think we, we need to go through these questions again. Now, I would comment on this that I think all of these options have disadvantages. Starting with the inflation linked annuity, um, first of all, it seems expensive. You don't get that many bangs for your bucks uh, when, you, when you get a quote for these things. There are structural drawbacks to these. Um, if you have high and increasing inflation, you're going to experience the effect of uh, indexation lags in the, uh, the, the calculation of the, the uh, annuity increases. I also think, and I could be wrong about this, but I think that currently the individual inflation-linked annuity products that the insurers are selling include a cap uh, on the increase. So they're not going to provide increases higher than uh, maybe 10% um, if inflation rises above those levels. And then also, finally, I think there is a moral hazard aspect to these, and it's a moral hazard sitting as much with the state as, as with the insurers. That if you retire at the age of 60, you're potentially going to be relying on your, your annuity choice for 30 or maybe even 40 years. And in the life of uh, a nation, the life of our new democracy, 30 or 40 years is a long time. So are you really going to be happy to, to bet that um, the state won't find some way of changing the rules or debasing the currency over those 30 or 40 years that, that the indexation promise which you, which you get when you buy the product uh, will deliver uh, securely and dependably to you over that sort of a time horizon, and, and you know some of us are going to have to think, make these choices for ourselves um, at some points. And, and I would put it to you that it's, it's maybe not quite as much of a no-brainer um, as it seems, even if you can, ex- uh, can, can secure a level of starting uh, pension from your inflation-linked annuity which, uh, which you're happy with. With profits, pensions with profits annuities. I think the, the drawbacks there are, are, are fairly clear: the investment mismatching brings a significant level of uncertainty as to future increases and the, the cost, the charges that the insurers um, make for guarantees certainly seem costly. I know those charges can be defended, but the effect of a 2% uh, per annum drag on the, the gross investment returns is, is maybe easier to ignore if those returns are, say, 18% per annum. Uh, as others have said already this morning, um, that effect is going to be harder to ignore if the returns uh, end up being 8% per annum. So, so I, th- I think there, there are some uh, disadvantages to, to with-profits annuities in, in their conventional forms, but nonetheless, I think that product does have some attractiveness. Guaranteed annuities with or without uh, fixed escalation, uh, the moral hazard there sits around inflation risk. Do, do, you, do you trust uh, the state over the next 30 or 40 years to, to honor its promise to keep inflation under control? Again, that's, that's one that I think is, is, is quite, a, quite a tough ask. Living annuities, we've seen lots of discussion about this. The pension that carries both the investment mortality risk and the costs are high. And then finally, taking your money outside the the, um, institutional savings net and and, um, saving it on a discretionary basis. Uh, Among the various problems with that uh, is the risk that you will be tempted to use the money unwisely. We certainly know that um, uh, one of the the biggest challenges facing retired people with, um, with discretionary capital is is being persuaded to to, um, apply that capital for the benefit of their children when their children uh, get into financial difficulties. So, so much for the the general comments. I now wanna talk about my practical experiences um, as the actuary to a fund uh, offering with profits in fund, with profits pensions to its defined contribution retirees. So it's a large fund. It's not a corporate employer, so I've called it a non-commercial employer. It was a large defined benefit fund which um, allowed members to convert to defined contributions in the late 1990s. Um, Most of the in-service members at that time converted from defined benefit to defined contribution basis. Uh, That was achieved by setting up a new defined contribution section in the fund. So they didn't create a separate fund. Uh, It's a hybrid with a a closed defined benefit section and a closed very large defined benefit pensioner pool. a defined contribution section. The defined contribution retirees are offered an in-fund with profits pension. It's entirely sitting on the fund's balance sheet. There's no reinsurance of that pension. Initially, those pensions were offered on a 5% per annum after retirement uh, interest rate. Members have some freedom to choose the exact terms of the pension we offer, guarantee terms of up to 15 years. Uh, and that's a deliberate strategy to counter the appeal of the living annuities because it's clear that to some extent, at least, living annuities are sold uh, on the basis that you will have capital left. If you die a few years after retirement, there will be capital left for your, for your family, for your children. And I think that the long guarantee term um, uh, gives quite a good answer to that, that, that you have to die a long time after retirement uh, to lose all of the, all of the capital <laughs> that you've invested if you take a 15-year uh, 15 year guarantee and the cost of even a long guarantee like that is not significant. It Doesn't result in a particularly significant reduction in the starting pension. So as I said, the fund has a large closed pool of defined benefit pensioners. It's also got the open defined contribution pool and over the uh, 14 years uh, life of the defined contribution section we followed largely similar investment strategies for the two pensioner pools. So here I'm looking at the growth of the defined contribution pensioner pool Uh, from a base of zero in 1998. uh, We've grown fairly steadily to 13 years later just under 1200 pensioners and it's probably uh, 13 or 1400 at at this point. And pensions in payment has risen from uh, zero to 45 million Rand per annum uh, with uh, a liability on a so-called best estimate basis again rising from zero to about 600 million rands. We do operate some smoothing of the investment returns when declaring pension increases, specifically in order to try to build up some sort of a safety margin, uh, uh, solvency reserve uh, in respect of these defined contributions, so-called defined contribution pension liabilities. That has fluctuated um, fairly predictably over time. It was at a low, uh, there was no safety margin, or no, you you could even call it surplus in relation to these pensions, I guess there was no safety margin at the trough of the markets in the middle of 2003. By 2006, 2007, it had built up to over 20%. It dipped again significantly to another trough at the end of February 2009, it was 107% by June 2009. These are the dates of statutory valuations. And it was sitting at 115% um, at the last valuation of the fund in the middle of last year. Uh, We have strengthened the pricing basis. We strengthened the the post-retirement interest rate from 5% Um, to four and a quarter percent at the 2006 valuation. uh, And we also changed the pricing basis for new retirees equivalently about a year after that. We changed the post-retirement interest rate again uh, in 2010. We dropped it from four and a quarter to about 4%. And we've similarly changed the pricing basis for new retirees earlier this year. Uh, It would be my ambition if we get the chance uh, over time to strengthen that further and take it down to about 3%, if if we can do so uh, managing the various challenges, some of which I'll talk about uh, in, in the next few slides, um, associated with managing this pool. I think we are probably capturing about 40 or 50% of the retirees from the defined contribution section of this fund. It should be higher. We do offer um, retirees a living annuity, an in-fund living annuity option, but I think at the same point at which we had 1,100 or 1,200 uh, with profits pensioners, we had 23 uh, in funds uh, living annuities. But I think 40, or 40 to 50% is reasonably satisfactory. Uh, I, I don't know what's happening to the rest, but I suspect a lot of them are still being persuaded uh, to buy commercial living annuities, unfortunately. The pension increase policy is to target 100% of inflation. Our pensioner mortality, combining both the defined contribution and the defined benefit pensioner pools, has been heavier than the PA90 annuity tables. This is a good case of false memory because my memory said to me that our experience was PA90 minus rated down by three years. And to my astonishment over the weekend when I was preparing the slides for this, I found a document that I'd written myself two years ago. Um, reporting on the mortality investigation of these pensioners, and it lo and behold says that our experience is PA90 rated up by three years. And I just have no memory of this whatsoever. I had to read it three times before I could understand that it was actually saying that mortality experience has been heavier. In other words, pensioners have been dying faster than predicted by PA90, which is our best estimate valuation basis. The investment strategy for both the pensioner pools, the defined contribution, so-called defined contribution pool, and the defined benefit pool, Um, now has significant uh, inflation linked to inflation matched component that we introduced uh, three or four years ago, which uh, I think uh, has quite nicely reduced the volatility of of, uh, investment returns for for members. Previously we followed what's much more conventional strategy, quite a lot of bonds, uh, quite a lot of ordinary bonds balanced with quite a lot of equities. And then finally, a piece of information which was not disclosed to me when I accepted the appointment as evaluator the fund has an annual general meeting for members, for members and pensioners at which members and pensioners are encouraged to come and put questions to the actuary. So that is somewhat of a coconut shy, as you can imagine, especially when increases are low. So let us have a look at the pension increase history for the defined contribution pensioner pool. So if we assume an at retirement pension of 100 rand for different retirement dates, starting in January, somebody who retired in January 1999, up to somebody who retired in January 2011. The red bars show the increase that you would need to have received to keep up with CPI. The blue bars show the increases which the fund actually has given for those various generations of retirees. Uh, You can see, for example, that whereas the 2009 retirees have received full inflation increases, the 2008 retirees have lagged somewhat. Uh, That is because we gave a zero increase to these pensioners in January 2009 on the back of fairly disastrous investment performance uh, at that that time. Uh, There was a zero increase also in 2003, but that one was recouped quite quickly with extra increases above inflation increases in the following years. Even so, looking at this at face value, I don't feel too ashamed of this pattern of increases. I think we're about 5% away, if we give a 5% a special catch-up increase at this point across the board. I think pretty much all of these generations uh, would come up to uh, full CPI, or very close to full CPI or slightly above. And I'm expecting uh, that uh, unless we have any accidents between now and the end of the year, um, we'll probably um, declare an inflation, an an increase of of two or maybe even 3% above inflation in January uh, 2013. So so that will make up about half of the, the difference. We are considering the pros and cons of differential increases for different generations of pensioners. The practice up to now has been, given, has been to apply one, increase to, one percentage increase to all pensioners across the board, and um, there, there are just drawbacks to trying to explain to pensioners that we're going to differentiate, uh, give different increases to pensioners retiring at different times, but it is something that, that I am thinking about. However, we are running a controlled experiment here because we've also got the closed pool of defined benefit pensioners, uh, and the investment strategy for them has been identical. So let's look at the uh, pensions increase experience for that pool. On the same basis, the green bars there show what has happened to defined benefit retirees uh, retiring on the different dates if if they had the same level of starting pension. And you can see certainly for retirees um, earlier than 2007, the increases that they have received have been substantially greater um, than the increases uh, given to the retirees from the defined contribution pool. And there was a very big uh, special increase given to the defined benefit pensioners in the year 2006, 2007, um, which explains a large part of the, the excess of the green bars in the earlier years. So what is happening here? We've had the same investment strategy for both pools. Why is there such a big difference in the increases. And I think there are three factors driving this. The first thing that is in in reality, the defined benefit pool did start in a stronger financial position. So in 2001, for example, it was 115% funded on the so-called best estimate valuation basis versus 107% for the defined contribution pool. Nonetheless, that head start can't explain the whole difference in the increase history. Hypothetically, mortality profits, which may not be entirely insignificant, given that our mortality experience here is relatively heavy compared with the valuation basis, hypothetically, mortality profits may have been larger in the defined benefit pool. That is untested and my suspicion is that that could only at best be a very minor factor. So the third factor, and undoubtedly the most significant, is new retiree strain. Now some of you here, I'm sure, are actuaries working in life offices involved in the management um, of pension or annuity pools and you'll say that this is very obvious. Um, and should have been obvious to to us too, but in reality we were pretty naive about this. And this has been the big surprise in managing this pool over the last 10 or 12 years. So we've had a pool of pensioners, uh, retirees from the defined contribution section which has been growing rapidly on a sustained basis from a zero base um, up until well over 1,000 10 years later. And the effect of that is that whenever we manage to build up any surplus um, via our pension increase smoothing policy, um, that surplus is immediately diluted and significantly diluted um, by the impact of new people coming into the pool. That, in effect, means we've got intergenerational cross-subsidies. The, the guys who came in in 1998 or retired in 1998 or 1999 um, are, are effectively subs, uh, subsidizing um, later retirees. And the question is um, how, how to mitigate uh, this, this um, new retiree strain. I would also add on that as a second note that operating an open pool um, of pensioners also brings challenges for the investment strategy. Because as I said, um, we, we managed to immunize a significant part of the pensioner liability in, in, in both uh, pensioner pools on an inflation match basis three or four years ago, um, but, uh, but the immunization in the case of the, defined, the open pool, the defined contribution pool, um, is gradually being diluted by the um, the impact of new members and new money coming into that pool, uh, and it is difficult to extend uh, that, that inflation immunization, inflation matching uh, at this point on an on a, um, equivalently uh, attractive basis. So mitigating the new retiree strain, we've got various options that we might consider. The one is something which I know the life companies have done from time to time, and that is to introduce a new bonus series. Uh, so we, we say that um, we'll, we'll effectively start a new pool for people retiring. If we, if we build up um, a surplus of 20 or 25% in our existing pensioner pool, let's close that pool and start a new, a new pool for new retirees. Um, my conclusion is that the governance of that and the communication challenge of that, explaining, of explaining that to the members, uh, just makes that a relatively um, unattractive option. The second is to charge some sort of a premium, you can call it an anti-dilution levy if you like, to new members coming into the pool at times when the surplus in the pool uh, uh, is significant. Um, And again, that is something that we we could consider. Uh, It has some practical implications and one of the things that we need to consider is if we uh, ratchet up the pricing uh, too much, in other words, we, we reduce the rand pension that you get per rand of capital that you contribute when you come into the pool, we're going to make these fund pensions or these in-fund pensions less attractive um, to retirees compared to the alternatives and make it easier for um, intermediaries to sell living annuities to them. So we have been somewhat reluctant to, to make our in-fund pensions uh, less competitive um, in pricing terms by, by uh, ratcheting up the pricing. Another thing that we, we maybe should have thought more about um, during the bull market years is simply not to let the surplus or the solvency reserves or the contingency reserves get too big. So maybe we should have um, declared higher pension increases um, in those years and and just not let the safety safety margin uh, accumulate to the level that it did. On the other hand, I'm pretty grateful that I didn't have to do a valuation of the fund on the 28th of February 2009. um, Because at that point, uh, I think if we'd declared away more of the surplus than we did by way of pension increases, we might well have found um, that our pension the pool was actually in a deficit. Certainly it's important to change the pricing basis when the reserving basis changes. So, so if you strengthen the reserving basis as we have done, uh, you need to strengthen the pricing basis for new entrants at the same time. I have found a degree of reluctance from trustees to agree to doing that, uh, which is their decision more than my decision um, so we've had some time lags between the point at which the valuation basis was changed and the point at which I was able to uh, persuade the trustees that we should change the pricing basis. Um, I think it's also important, if you're doing that, to try to keep those steps uh, reasonably small, because you don't want to um, to hike the price of the annuity uh, by 15 or 20 per cent at one bound if you can avoid it. So you want to keep, you 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 want to follow a policy of small incremental changes uh, rather than. Uh, big occasional changes if you can. And then I've talked about the issue of competition from other retirement products as, as, as being a factor that, that one needs to think about. Um, you, you don't want to uh, risk making your in-fund pension uh, too uncompetitive. Now, other than the effect of new retiree strain, which, as I said, uh, has certainly come as, um, uh, as, as quite a... Um, Uh, a big challenge to the operation and and a a challenge which I think for me uh, operated over a surprisingly long period of time. So we're now more than 10 years into the operation of this pool uh, and we're still facing significant dilution um, of solvency reserves um, uh, because of uh, the impact of new retirees. So it takes quite a long time for the pool to reach maturity. We've got other issues as well. The first point I think is a fairly basic one is aren't aren't we just running an unlicensed insurance company here? Is this something that... The trustees as, as, as amateurs in this field uh, and even pensions actuaries like myself as relative amateurs in this field just should not be considering at all. That also leads to the question of regulatory arbitrage because there's no requirement for any shareholder here to put up capital um, to, to back these pensions. Uh, that does make um, the, the, the in fund with profits product uh, pension relatively cheap by comparison with the mature equivalent. Uh, but one can argue that that, that, that cheapness disguises extra risks, which the trustees may not understand. And I must say that as valuator to this fund, I do feel very conscious that if anything was to go wrong, and things going wrong is is by no means an impossibility, that the responsibility is going to fall, the responsibility is going to be placed on my shoulders. The trustees are going to say, look, you could never have expected us to understand all of the technical complexities and risks here. Uh, You need to take responsibility for um, our collective failure to manage these risks. Uh, in a way that's achieved a happy outcome. And then, of course, the the next question is, um, what does the employer think about all of this? What is the employer covenant in respect to the defined contribution contribution pool of pensioners here? Does the employer understand this covenant, whatever it might be, uh, does the employer understand the risks? Uh, It is a surprise to me that in the last uh, 10 or 12 years, the employer has asked almost no questions about the operation of this pool. I think in a more commercial context, if you had a corporate employer, um, you're going to find that IAS 19 requirements pose a significant deterrence for the employer to any suggestion of setting up such a, uh, such a pensioner pool. In addition, if I were an employer, I would say, gosh, I'm not sure that I trust the state not to change the rules again in the future as they have done in the past. And I'm pointing to the surplus legislation in 2001. I think that was a case where... Um, the rules were changed for pension fund uh, sponsoring employers and I'm not sure that I as an employer would ever agree uh, to this thing in in the future. And then as the trustees and the evaluator, one has to consider what responsibilities we have to the employer. We certainly have some uh, responsibility to act in good faith and not to um, uh, act in a way that unreasonably increases the risks uh, that the employer might face or or, for that matter, disguises the risk that the employer might face, and I think finally on this then the, 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 there 's a nexus between the um, actuarial management of the pool and the investment management of, of the pool, and maybe to to understand that nexus, you can start with asking the question what management actions are available to the trustees and the evaluaator if the pool were to become significantly underfunded and I'm not absolutely sure what they are. Um, I think that we can change, we can weaken the pension increase policy if we need to, and weaken the after retirement investment rate, provided we communicate to our pensioners that instead of targeting 100% of inflation increases in future, um, the deteriorated financial position of the pool means that we can only target 50% of inflation increase. I do not think that is gonna be well received by, by the pensioners. Do we have any option to write up the assets above the current market value or alternatively to weaken the um, uh, liability valuation basis without changing the pension increase policy. I'm not sure that we do. I think it would be be quite a brave evaluator um, who would take either of those steps and still claim that that the pension increase um, policy, the pension increase expectations uh, that pensioners may have in in the fund is, is unaffected. And I think the investment strategy that you follow probably needs to allow for this. So the less room to maneuver uh, that the actuary and the trustees have in a deficit situation, the greater the focus needs to be on risk management uh, when setting your investment strategy. And that certainly in this case does give me some comfort now that that we've got a a fairly significant inflation-linked component in the investment mix uh, of this particular fund. So in conclusion, I don't think we're going to bother with the clickers for this, but I was going to ask you, uh, having heard what I've said this morning, is there anybody who would vote in favor um, of advising trustees to consider uh, in funds with profits pensions? Hands up. Anybody brave enough to say yes? Okay, there are a few. <laughs> because a couple of years after I became evaluator to this fund, I was asked by another trustee board who were keen and believed that they could persuade their employer to do such, such a thing. And I said, look, I just think that the, the governance difficulties that you may face here, are such as to, make this, as to make this unattractive. The fact that nothing very bad uh, has gone wrong with the, the, the pool that, uh, that we are operating that I've just described to you uh, doesn't mean that uh, nothing very bad is ever gonna go wrong in the future. A few comments on in-fund living annuities. Again, uh, I have a couple of clients uh, who are operating in-fund living annuity pools. That, if you like, is a no advice model. It certainly allows the funds to offer living annuities that are very cheap, but I think the absence of advice, and this picks up something uh, that John is saying clearly, the, the absence of advice does give an easy opening to the financial advisors. The next issue is limiting the maximum drawdown. Typically in our funds where trustees are operating in fund living annuity pools, um, we are not allowing members routinely to draw 17.5% um, of the capital as a um, as a maximum. We're setting ceilings um, that for a pensioner in his or her 60s, probably in the region of 9 to 10%. I would ideally like to set those ceilings lower, but again, you've got the problem of competition, that if you make the ceilings too low, um, the financial advisors will say that that, that, that becomes a disadvantage of the, the in-fund option as opposed to the, the commercial option. You may ask the question, I don't think that many of our funds have done this, uh, whether it is appropriate to set a minimum capital amount, um, for retirees who want to take an in-fund living annuity. You can't do this, we would, we would say to retirees, unless you have, say, a million or a million and a half or two million rands um, of, of uh, retirement capital. Um, the reasons for introducing these type of restrictions, um, I think, are the danger that the fund simply takes on the same reputational risks as the commercial living annuity providers, in my view, have done um, by offering in-fund living annuities. And that is something trustees have to think about. You know, these products, uh, will still, even if they're offered on a cheap basis inside pension funds, um, will still be attracting um, retirees who probably should not be taking a living annuity at all. Uh, in some cases these things are gonna go badly wrong for, these, for those retirees uh, and then don't the reputational problems just fall back on the, on the trustees. If the take up is pretty low as a percentage of the retirees from your fund, you've then got to ask is it really worth the effort because it is gonna put a greater governance burden on the trustees, the greater administrative com- uh, complexity for the fund. Um, in the large fund that I talked about with the open with profits pensioner pool, as I said, we have 23 living annuitants taking living annuities from the fund. We've recently been asked um, to create a default life stage investment strategy for those living annuitants. Now that's not a bad thing to do, and that, that's uh, for a bigger pool, I think something that would be very worthwhile. I've got to say it's going to be quite a lot of work to set up a default strategy, default investment strategy for 23 pensioners uh, out of a fund whose total membership uh, is something like 15,000. I will give the counter example of one medium-sized fund with about 3,300 in-service members um, where, believe it or not, we have about 30% of our retirees taking fund living annuities. That's the only in-fund option available to them. but the take-up there is about 30%. Uh, and after 10 years we have got about 100 in-fund pensioners. So that pool uh, is building up um, some critical mass uh, over time, but, but it is still relatively small as a percentage of total fund liabilities. And I must say that my guess is that that take-up rate is unusually high. I think that is a fund where the trustees and the fund itself um, have quite a high level of trust um, from, from members of the fund. Um, there's good member communication. In general, in the employing institution, there are, there are good relations between the employer and, and staff, so they're good employer-employee relations, uh, and there's been a very stable trustee board over a 15-year time period. Um, so I think that is a case where, over time, the fund has earned uh, quite a high degree of trust um, from its members, and if you can build that trust, I think you're certainly going to increase your, the, the attractions of whatever in fund options you, you want to, you want to make available. So the alternatives, I think John has touched on this and I just want to re- reinforce what he says. The, the alternatives to either of those forms of in fund pension, we think, um, are probably some sort of no advice or low advice, um, low cost annuity facilitation service being offered to retirees by, by the pension funds. Now, I'm reluctant to say no advice um, because I think that members are looking for some kind of face-to-face interaction. One, one of the attractions which the intermediary market has um, uh, on members uh, clearly is that members are looking for somebody who's going to take responsibility uh, away from you, so away, away from them when, when they retire. So um, in the cases where funds have been reasonably successful in persuading members uh, to take in-fund options of whatever form, Uh, those are funds who do provide some sort of a facilitation service, including a face-to-face so-called front office where um, members of the fund approaching retirement can uh, see fund employees um, who will take them through their options, assist them with paperwork, explain the pros and cons, uh, even if nominally those explanations don't constitute advice, they they certainly constitute the sort of face-to-face contact that I think um, retirees do value. So I think... Uh, we've got to look for, if we can, some sort of a low advice. Um, uh, e- even if it's not a full advice uh, service, it, it's got to be something more than a no advice service. So the nature of the facilitation service will be pr- to provide the retiring employee with uh, annuity quotes, and, and our view is that those should be with profits annuity quotes um, from a panel of two or, th- two or more insurers. Um, those will be annuities in the name of the pensioners, Um, those annuities will not sit on the balance sheet of the pension fund itself. To make this successful, member education, member communication and efficient service are are key. It remains to be seen how well retirees are going to take this up. And I do think the question uh, of how much trust um, members have in the fund uh, is going to be fairly important there. So this is something that we are starting to roll out across, across our client base for large pension funds where there is trustee interest. I can certainly say that my experience is that there is a lot of trustee interest and a lot of trustee concern about cracking this annuitization nut, um, but I'm not uh, not sure that we know all the answers yet. Good, so I think that's everything I have to say.
0: Thanks very much. We're close to lunch, but I thought that it was worth firing a couple of questions at the panel. Also, if there are questions, for David in terms of his session. Um, I thought that we should finish off the session with questions regarding these sort of policy options that David highlighted. Okay, the first question is, is there, a, is there a solvency requirement on the in-fund annuity option? And then the final question is, what is the employee, I'm sorry, employer liability or exposure in that setup?
2: There's nothing in the rules, there's nothing strange or, or unusual in the rules of the pension fund in this case relating to, to this spools. So, If the fund was wound up in the deficit, I think the employer would be liable to make good the deficit. Hypothetically, if there was a significant deficit on an ongoing basis, we may be required to address this by asking the employer to pay extra contributions. Um, The funding in the triennial valuations, as valuator, I would have to certify a funding funding level based on at least a best estimate so-called best estimate valuation basis, and if there were a deficit, I would have to, we would have to apply our minds to how to how to alleviate that deficit. So, there's nothing in the structure of this fund, I think, that gives the employer any special protection. Which is why I must admit, uh, my suspicion is the employer does not really know the risk to which they're exposed. And of course, when this pool was conceived 13 years ago, um, that risk was tiny. The, the assets of this so called defined contribution pensioner pool are still well under 10% of the total fund balance sheet. Um, so it is still relatively immaterial uh, to the employer, but, but that immateriality is diminishing year by year. Yeah. So you, you, you're asking could we, could we have operated with lower surplus or low, lower, lower smoothing reserves? Fear, I think, is the answer.
0: And, Con- and conser- answer Concern that. Yeah. The answer is lack and a function of the markets.
2: Yeah, there's, there's an element of luck but there is certainly there is certainly a debate and, and some degree of pressure um, to declare higher inflate, higher increases and there's a bit of a tussle in, in practice let me say there's a bit of a tussle between between myself as valuator and the trustees every year around the level of the increases um, I go in with a low bid um, they argue me up uh, and I then say with the appearance of reluctance. Okay, well, I suppose we can afford a couple of percent more. I don't think this will be unfamiliar to to to, to a, a lot of pensions actuaries. So, so, but, but, you know, my my bias is to be somewhat conservative because I am fearful of the consequences um, of of frankly the consequences of a market crash.
0: Um,
3: yes, I, I think uh, there's two comments I want to make. The first one is, I think Eric, you were arguing the case against in-fund annuities, but I think in the end if you look at the increases being granted by the fund you had in, as an example, it's a clear case for in-fund annuities because to get increases that's very close to inflation of a post retirement interest rate of 5% going down to 4% for the last 10 years, you would have really struggled to get the same outside through any insurance company um, for that kind of level of increases. The governance issue is an issue and I think there's the, that's what makes you afraid if, if I heard discussion is the effort around that, but I think for a member it's still a very is, 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 if you, from a member's point of view it's still the cheapest option if you can get that because your costs are much lower. Uh, just just on the question of I think what we talked we talked about living annuities on one hand living annuity what you have is the risk the investment risk and the mortality risk in a sense sitting with the, with the member both of them then you have the life annuity on the other hand where you sit with the, with the with the risk of the underlying guarantee sitting with either the insurer or with the employer with the fund in a sense, which is the scary thing between the two. Now, from a regulatory point of view, isn't there space for something in the middle? Is it with profit annuity without the same guarantees that's required currently from our regulation? You can't reduce the annuity. The, meaning, the result of that would be much cheaper regulatory or solvency requirements from insurers if they do provide the product because they don't have to set aside the capital. But I think our industry is well-developed. In the sense of the cash flow matching and the process of investment backing these kind of things, that the probability of, I think, in our own environment, where with profit annuities were actually underfunded, where capital was required, is, 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 uh, is uh, it's been run in a way that that probability is very, very low. And that might make it cheaper, even if you buy guaranteed annuities from insurers, because you've got a much cheaper option there. And through infund, in-fund if you do it through an infund option, where the employer doesn't have the risks that he has currently, and that's why they don't want to put it on the table. That's something one can think about and maybe take further. Obviously there's risks around it, but that's just something for me, thanks. I could make two quick comments on that. The first is that I did look
2: at a comparison between the increases that we've granted in that fund to the defined contribution pensioner pool and the increases that two leading insurers have granted on the equivalent uh, bonus categories of their with profits pensioner pool. And in the case of one insurer, we were fairly comfortably ahead. In the case of the other insurer, we were somewhat behind. So we were kind of in the middle. I would have actually hoped that given that there's no doubt that the cost structure is lower because there's no capital charge, that we would have done better than both insurers. But as I said, we, we were lagging lagging one of those insurers fairly
4: noticeably over 10 or 12 years. Yeah, I mean, the issue of with profits and where where the pension amount can fall is... One of the things we have been looking at, um, but we do have some concerns about them. And in particular, and it's a concern that's shared with all risk-sharing arrangements, where the risk is shared between the um, pension fund member or the the, the pensioner and someone else, whether it's an insurance company or a sponsor. And it's not immediately clear that the ability to reduce pensions in, 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 in extremis doesn't give the provider other incentives to do... Bad things, right? And in a competitive market, if 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 the seller is a, is a board of trustees who have a duty of care to their members and their you know, degree of paternalism, it's 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 one thing. But if if it's a commercial market where uh, individual insurance companies are competing for business from different pension funds, the ability to pass on risks like that to, to pensioners is it, it presents them with some opportunities to do bad things. And it's not immediately clear to us how we regulate those opportunities away. But, um, you know, we're interested in exploring that option, but we we are are, are cognizant of at least some of the risks associated with it.
0: While Arthur comes up, I just warn you, too many pensions actuaries who who think that it's okay to cover equity risk, which is effectively an an interest rate risk issue. And you know, we've sort of seen where we think we are in in the past. I think you could do that when you're beating bonds by 4%.
5: Thanks, everybody. I'm one of those actuaries who put his hand up to say the best place for pensioners is in the pension fund. I'm disappointed in John. John, I wanted more, more uh, support for keeping pensioners in the pension fund. I've got experience of outsourced pensioners versus fund in fund pensioners. I'd like to just show you a few observations over the last few years. Thanks. The next slide. Investment returns from insurers credited to pension funds have been a lot less than earned in the funds. Next slide. Have a look at this graph. This is taken from the paper by Dave Strugnell last year, presented at the convention. And What he did is he compared uh, people who had gone to DC, how their retirement pensions compared to people who remained DB. That top graph is investment return earned on the assets in a pension fund. In other words, had the money stayed in a pension fund, the DC retiree would have got the benefit of the top graph. The bottom graph are the investment returns from the insurer. In other words, from a smooth bonus portfolio. And what was very interesting was that big gap at the end. Normally, a smooth bonus portfolio should straddle the, the top one. Some things happen in the insurance environment in the last seven or eight years that's resulting in lower investment returns being credited than the underlying portfolio. Now that's the investment returns. Let's look at the increases. Next slide please. What I've done is I've taken those investment returns and worked out what increases a fund could give versus the increases given by that same insurance company to its bought out with profit pensioners. Thank you. This is an actual example. Since 2000, in other words, the outsourcing took place in the year 2000 and we've gone through the increases up to date. Thank you. Have a look at that. I've taken the fund increases at equal to inflation. They could have afforded a hang of a lot more, as Eric said. The top line is the accumulated increases up to January this year. The bottom line that the increases granted to the outsourced pension as a reality, 17% differential. But what's much more important, next slide, thanks, is that during now the outsourcing took place in 2000, you had your excellent returns, 2004, 5, 6, 30% per year. Not only are the fund increases 17% greater, but in addition the fund has got 70% undistributed investment earnings within the fund. Those are waiting to be granted. Now, in the fund that I'm actually to, we normally gave more than inflation increases over the years, so we wouldn't have such a big margin. And that's, that does make the point that buying out your pensioners, whether in the name of the fund or with an insurer, does guarantee, based on experience, that your pensioners are a lot worse off than they would be in the fund. And Eric's raised a few points. One of them is a the level of trust that the, the members have with the trustees. The other one is that within the funding no costs. And then I think can we pick up the next slide? This is the point that Nick has raised a sec ago. And I'll cover some of this in my talk after lunch on ERM. Solvency two Sam is a tsunami just below the horizon. one of the points I do make later is that the insurance companies, and if pension funds have to hold reserves, annuity rates are likely to reduce by up to 20%. Now, If pension funds don't have to hold us capital, we won't have that. But insurers are in great danger of giving even smaller increases. So my conclusion is, the best place for pension funds is in your own pension, your home pension. And outsourcing is detrimental. Thank you.
0: Okay, in the interest of time I thought we should just do a quick straw poll in terms of David's policy options um, before we go to lunch. So the first one was, should we create strong defaults um, that then drive the sort of low low advice model? So those in favor, lift up your hands. And those against, Okay, all together now, and a whole bunch of people who are abstaining. Should we increase the need to enforce longevity protection by forcing the purchase of life annuities. All in favour? And against? Allow a flexible environment. Should we um, reform living annuities by hard-coding levels of drawdowns and natures of investment strategies? All in favour? those against? Not too many libertarians here. Should government sell annuities? Yes. No. Should we enforce market conduct? We've mentioned a lot, we've picked on brokers a lot this morning. Uh, Should we um, enforce market conduct of intermediaries through legislation or should we be doing it through the nature of the product design? So market conduct through the intermediaries and should we force it through the product? So are we gonna change phase in terms of the way people collect commission, charge for commission? Or we're we going to cr- enforce the connection of that remuneration and that advice within the product. So, create product standards specific to annuities that you cannot connect commission more than one and a half percent. So, what I'm saying is, is there a problem with the market conduct, or is there a problem with the product? So, my point is, I think that we're we're fixing a market conduct problem within a product.
4: One issue that that, that is worth thinking about when you respond to our consultation is. You know, a lot of the discussion about living annuities, or, or I don't like calling them that, phased withdrawals, and conventional annuities deals with deals with them as though they're absolutes. So, you know, either you put all your money in one or all your money in the other. And, you know, the discussion document that we're going to release talks a lot about hybrid products. So products where individuals have, and there are a couple of types of hybrids. So uh, one type of hybrid is a combination hybrid where individuals have both a conventional annuity and a drawdown product at the same time, right? Another type of hybrid is a sequential hybrid, where individuals start off in a phased withdrawal and then gradually, either all at once or in various little bits, uh, segue, I don't like that word, but it's useful, uh, segue into um, conventional annuities, right? And that's called a sequential hybrid. So. You know, and then other types of hybrids are variable annuities of various flavors. The challenge with variable annuities, as I've already mentioned, is trying to find a, a risk-sharing rule between the insurer or the pension fund and pensioners that results in good behavior in a competitive market. I mean, that's the great challenge. And, you know, the uh, if if one can find such a rule, I think that, the, that those... A variable annuities have a very compelling case in, in, in their favor. Um, but the challenge, and, and you know, here we're dealing with, we're in a room full of experts on this, so um, you know, if anyone has any ideas on that, uh, we'd be very grateful to hear them. But I do hope that you um, read the, the uh, review that we're going to release in bearing in mind the possibility of hybrid options. So moving away from this idea that it has to be either or, all right? And, and focusing on hybrid solutions. Thank you very much.
0: As we think about lunch, I think it's really important to sort of acknowledge our sponsors. Sunnum is a silver sponsor and ABSA is a bronze sponsor. Um, For those of you thinking of ducking out early um, and missing the final session, which is probably the most important session, there will be drinks afterwards as an incentive for you to stay. (laughs) We'll see you here too.